Our reading this morning comes from the poet and farmer Wendell Berry. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. After days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last, and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns, the trees move. I didn't grow up in a praying family. Much of what I learned about prayer was from TV, movies, and the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> I have two main memories of prayer as a child. The first, when I was about eight years old, on the night before my grandmother was going to have hip surgery, I prayed to God with all my heart that it would go well and that she would pass through the experience safely. I remember praying really, really hard so that the prayer would have lots of strength and would thereby be more likely to be granted. The next day, she came through just fine. I wasn't sure what my prayer had to do with the outcome. My second memory. One Christmas night, after all the presents had been opened and the joyful anticipation of that big day had been spent, I prayed to Santa Claus with all my heart that he would come back down the chimney that night with a second round of gifts. <laughs> this prayer request did not come to fruition. As I became a teenager, I grew away from the idea that prayer could change anything. I remember openly mocking prayer with my high school friends, proudly scoffing at the notion that this kind of magical thinking could do anything. It just didn't make sense. Prayer seemed delusional, even hurtful as I watched my fundamentalist classmates gather around the flagpole as school started, praying for the rest of us. So fast forward to my seminary years. It was the first day of my hospital chaplaincy internship at this big hospital on the south side of Chicago. At this point in my life, I knew that prayers in church touched me in a transformative way. They brought me back to my best self. They gave me an opening for lamenting suffering and admitting my transgressions. They invited me to embody love. Prayer was also something intensely personal for me, something best offered by someone more knowledgeable and experienced than myself, 
but it was also something that I could fumblingly and earnestly whisper when I was alone. But praying publicly for strangers? Terrifying. As I prepared to see my first patient as a hospital chaplain, I armed myself with prayers. My pockets were bulky with cheat sheets, with a pamphlet of interfaith prayers and a book of psalms and quotes from scripture. I was going to be legit and I was going to do this right. The proper prayer for the proper occasion. And so I went to go see my first patient and I knew three things about her from the hospital census. That she was white, she was a woman, and she was Catholic. And knowing that many of my patients would be Catholic, in a last-minute effort to prepare, I memorized the Lord's Prayer. So I walked in and greeted her and her husband, and I saw that there was an apparatus that was helping her breathe that meant that she couldn't speak. So I exchanged some words with her very reserved husband, and then I turned to the patient and asked, how can I support you? And she mouthed one word, pray. All right, I bowed my head and began the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, oh, I knew it was something about bread. <laughs> Forgive us our trespasses and our debts as we trespass. Oh, I fumbled through the end of it. I topped it off with an amen and looked up. Painful. I wanted so badly to do that prayer just right and to meet this patient's simple request, and I had fallen down in my attempt to recite a prayer from memory. And this was the beginning of two learnings for me. Number one. If you're going to recite a prayer from memory, you have to do your homework. <laughs> and number two, prayer is more about being than it is about doing. I've come to believe that prayer is, above all, a particular quality of attention that makes room for the holy, however we understand it. Prayer is an act of openness and receptivity to that still, small voice within us, that voice that connects us to love, to wisdom, and to life's great mystery. Whether we are praying with words, with our bodies, through writing, meditation, or through a rally for justice, prayer is a quality of attention that expands our listening capacity. We set aside the ongoing monologue of our own ego. Mine is playing all the time. It's filled with wants and worries and pointless evaluations. We set aside that ego monologue and engage in a deeper kind of listening with the heart. Listening not to a monologue, but to song. Songs that remind us of what is true and real and good the song of our inner wisdom, and the song of that humbling, resonant choir of life's mystery. The songs both of the intimate and the ultimate. 
UU minister John Corrado captures this listening quality of prayer so beautifully in his hymn, Voice Still and Small. Voice still and small, deep inside all, I hear you call, singing. In storm and rain, sorrow and pain, still I remain, singing, calming my fears, quenching my tears, through all the years, singing. Human beings tune into this ancient song in all kinds of ways. Sometimes prayers take place in a space that we intentionally set aside for prayer, such as communally in church or in our own spiritual practice, with words of gratitude and confession and hope. Sometimes they come up spontaneously as disaster looms. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Or as words of awe. Oh my God. Our justice work can have a prayerful intention, a quality of openness to a greater wisdom and an aspiration for a world that is more whole. And the gifts of time and attention that we offer our loved ones this holiday season have a quality of prayer. There are prayers of transition that stoke our awareness and open us up as we cross a threshold. Prayers upon waking, grace before a meal, prayers before bedtime. According to Philip Zaleski, a prominent thinker on prayer, to participate in a ritual is to enter the world of prayer and to make a habit of prayer is to open the door to ritual. Our two-year-old daughter, Sarah, started a ritual in our house that became prayerful. Whenever anyone says goodbye, especially if you're saying goodnight, she asks for a hug and an other side hug and a kiss. And it's very sweet. And then she expanded the ritual so I would hug her, and my husband would hug her and kiss her. And then she would request that my husband and I hug and give an other side hug and kiss as she presided over the ritual. <laughs> and it always made us laugh, but it also forced us to get out of our focus of getting the task of bedtime done. And it invited us into moments of connection and gratitude. And apparently it got interesting the night that I was gone, so my mother and my husband put Sarah to bed together. <laughs> and Sarah requested that they embrace and kiss each other. But even in that awkwardness, they saw the connecting power of this bedtime prayer ritual. And it is so sweet and easy and pleasurable for me to share this simple, prayerful ritual with you. But I've got to say my most formative 
and life-transforming experiences of prayer have not been pretty. They've not been comfortable. They have not been something that I've willingly stepped into. Uh, they've been kind of messy. So I'd like to share one with you this morning. Our daughter was not an easy newborn. She cried a lot. She resisted sleep, and she seemed to need nearly constant rocking and holding. And my lovely husband, Jason, had dreamed with me about how we would both care for the baby after she arrived. He described to me how I would just lay in bed after childbirth <laughs> while he brought Sarah to me to nurse or for comfort. However, he injured his arms a couple of months before Sarah was born. And the doctor instructed him to rest his arms at all times if he wanted them to heal, to not lift a thing, to avoid holding his child. So my arms were the arms that comforted our colicky child through days and nights of crying and crying and crying. And as soon as Sarah was down for the night, I would collapse into bed, exhausted, and I would sleep. It was so sweet. Until she woke, and then I would feed her, and then I would rock her and jiggle her and shush her until she finally returned to sleep. And then I would hold her some more until it seemed like I could safely put her down in her crib without waking her. Maybe you have performed some version of this intricate dance, and sometimes it goes seamlessly and you feel like you should win an award. And other times you've got two left feet and a dance partner who screams angry protests. And after a couple of months of this, I started to have a hard time going back to sleep after those middle-of-the-night feedings that involved extensive jiggling and shushing. And I found I would stay awake through the middle of the night and nod off again at 4 or 5 a.m. And then one night, I just didn't fall asleep. Sleep never came. I switched from the bed to the guest room to the couch. I went to my daughter as I needed to. And I never went to sleep that night. And then I didn't sleep the next night or the next night. A disturbing kind of fatigue entered my body. I was both utterly exhausted and totally wired. So tired, but my systems were all on high alert. My mom flew across the country to help out. She and Jason took care of Sarah at night so I could rest. Before bedtime, I took hot baths, I did yoga, I avoided the TV and computer, I dimmed the lights and drank relaxing tea, and still sleep didn't come. I got a prescription for a drug to help me sleep, but it only ended up helping me to fake sleep for little chunks of time. This was a relief in the short term, but it actually ended up prolonging my sleeping problems. And there was this feeling that haunted me, this feeling inside that felt really bad. It hung over me like a cloud during these insomnia months. And it wasn't the feeling of exhaustion 
or the clanking emptiness inside after a sleepless night. This feeling was fear. My body could not do something essential that it had always done. This was very disturbing. I had no idea when my body would relearn to fall asleep or if it ever would. A sleepless night would leave me totally obsessed with the next night's sleep and whether I would regress into that bad place where I didn't sleep a lot. UU minister and game warden Kate Braystrup notes that there is a phenomenon widely recognized among people involved in search and rescue missions. Namely, that when an ordinarily sensible, intelligent, rational human being gets lost in the woods, he will do uncharacteristically silly things. Suspecting that he might be walking in the wrong direction, he walks faster until it is so dark that he is literally banging into trees. He does not stop to make shelter or inventory his food supply, nor does he consider signaling for help. No, he presses on. To do anything else than to press on would be to admit to himself that he's no longer in control of the situation. And he doesn't want to do that. With my free minutes or even hours in the day, did I take time to intentionally calm myself, to center and listen to that still small voice within? No. I kept walking faster into the woods. With my free time, I got online and I googled furiously, searching and searching for an answer, trying to combine all different search terms that might yield a solution or a comforting story. And I'm guessing that many of us in here know just how comforting and helpful it is to obsessively Google an ailment. <laughs> Usually not very. <clears throat> I rushed around town, I made a million different trips to the natural food store, trying to get various remedies that would fix it. I bought new pillows, new pajamas, I spent a lot of money on acupuncture and massage. I obsessed over my diet, my exercise. I obsessed over my relaxing rituals, which of course was so relaxing. <laughs> and then I wasted some more time on the internet. My point is not that any of these are bad ideas on their own, but that the worried, fearful intensity with which I engaged in them, like a person walking faster into the woods, pressing on because I couldn't admit to myself that I actually had very little control in resolving this situation, at least on the timetable that I wanted. And during that time, my mother sent me a poem that we heard as our reading this morning. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. And then what I am afraid of comes I live for a while in its sight, and what I fear in it leaves it. And the fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song.
I hear my song at last and I sing it. My sleeplessness was the animal that I was afraid of and prayer was the only way to encounter it that was helpful. And I could only settle into this attitude of prayer. I could only settle into this attitude of prayer if I first forced myself to stop crashing through the woods and admitted that I did not have a lot of control over what was happening, and then get off Facebook, and then stop picking up the house. And I made myself go sit among trees. Or, in my case, sit on a milk-stained couch. And I promised myself that after I put the baby down for a nap, I would take 10 minutes to say some words of thanks and then do nothing but breathe and muster that quality of attention known as prayer. This was not another attempt to solve the problem. This was an act of surrender. What I feared always came to live in my sight, and sometimes my brain would not stop spinning. But if I was lucky, what I feared in it left it, and the fear of it left me. My sleeplessness sang, and I heard its song, and my own song inside of it. The song of a new parent run down by crying and chaos, broken open with awe and fear at this massive shift in identity and responsibility, and there was no going back. I heard the song of every person who's found themselves carrying the great responsibility of caring for a fragile person at any age, caring for someone with enormous need and strong emotions with whom our life and heart is intimately entwined. I heard the song of my very human helplessness, and in it, the echoes of many songs of suffering throughout time, throughout the world, songs that made my middle-class mother of a healthy child woes suddenly seem like a blessing instead of a burden. And often, if I could just get past listening to my own ego and into an attentive, prayerful listening, this wisdom would come. This, too, shall pass. Voice still and small, deep inside all, I hear you call, singing. May it be so, and amen.